here in chapter 16, we've seen these seven angels, seven signifying all of them, all of God's preachers are involved in this pouring out of bowls. That's what it is. The vials are bowls of God's wrath that are poured out when the gospel is preached. And in verse 10 here, where we um, left off last time, the fifth angel poured out this vial upon the seat of the beast. Now, the seat of the beast is false religion. We know that. The place that the, that the, that the devil dwells and rules and operates from in this world is from pulpits, from the false religion of this world. The beast has always been about perverting the word of God. We saw him in the garden in the beginning, perverting the word of God, hath God said questioning God's word, and he's still doing that. He doesn't change. There's no repentance for him. There's no desire for it anyway. And that's what he's doing now. He started it in the Garden of Eden, and he continues it today. He does it from pulpits now. And when this fifth gospel preacher pours out his vial upon false religion, It reveals it to be darkness. He pours it out and his kingdom was full of darkness. The kingdom of the beast was full of darkness. There's two senses in which this is experimentally true. The truth reveals the darkness of the false gospel. And there's only one. They go by different names, but there's Christ and there's Antichrist in the scripture. It doesn't recognize all the various denominations in the word of God. It just says Christ and not Christ. <laughs> That's pretty simple. The, the way that leads to life is the Lord Jesus Christ and the broad way that leadeth unto destruction is man's way. And they're ushered by Satan down that road, but it's man. The mark of the beast is man, man, man. And it always has, it's always, Satan is always about man, isn't he? Oh, you haven't been told, that's not what he meant, or, or that's, he wouldn't intend for you to not be, you know, as smart as you can be. You're, you're getting the raw end of the deal here. It's always about elevating man and exalting man and, and impressing the flesh. So, and notice here that this false gospel of man-centered free will religion is darkness, and it's revealed to be darkness only by the preaching of Christ. You can't really preach against darkness or dispel darkness by pointing out that it's darkness. Somebody got to turn the light on. That's the gospel. Somebody's got to preach the truth. Now notice that it's full of darkness. You see that in that verse 10? And his kingdom was full of darkness. There was nothing else. And people love to say, you know, people who often that know some truth in their heads, but they want to be inclusive. They always want to be inclusive because they're too lazy or, or afraid of, the, of man to just get up and leave somewhere that doesn't preach the truth. I've experienced this in my life with my own loved ones. I've seen it in others that, that are not uh, in, my, in, in my personal circle uh, of family. They ju- it's just the convenience and the, they like the people there. 
What has that got to do with the gospel? What has that got to do with hearing from God? There's a lot of people I like that I can't, I probably couldn't worship with them. Suspect I couldn't. But they know the truth, they know some truth at least in their heads. There's a lot of people in this case, but they want to be inclusive and they love to say this. Yeah, he doesn't preach what you preach, Chris, but he says a lot of good things. Have you ever heard that one? No, he doesn't. He's full of darkness. It's all darkness. A lie is a lie. He preaches Christ or he don't preach Christ. And if he don't, then he's full of darkness. There's no light in him. If they preach not according to the words of this prophecy, it's because God said, what? There's no light in them. None. No good things. All that sentimental nonsense, there's nothing sweet about it. It's the blackness of darkness. And it's soul damning. It's not to be tolerated. I wouldn't let my children go anywhere near them. If you're, you know, nobody asks my advice much anymore, but they used to about going to Christian schools and things like that. I wouldn't touch them with a 500 foot pole. I'd just as soon send my kids to a leper, leper, a leper colony than a false church. Well, I don't like to give advice unless I'm asked, but you know, there it is. It's not, they're not, they're no, no good in it. It's full of darkness. The gospel also consigns those in the kingdom of Satan to darkness. Now think about this. It's, it's another little different sense, but it's clearly taught in the scripture and true. Not only are they dealing in darkness in that gospel, only the gospel can reveal that, but they suffer the darkness of reprobation. There's darkness in their heart. Turn with me, please, to 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Let's look at this together. 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And then shall that wicked, capital W, we know who that is, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And what are we saying now? Remember what we're saying. Not only is it is what they preach revealed to be darkness by the gospel, but their own hearts are full of dark. They themselves are full of darkness. And here's why. Because they hate the truth of God. They receive not the love of the truth. That's the only way a sinner doesn't hate the truth of God. Is if God gives him a love for the truth. A love for Christ. And they receive that not. And so they hate the truth. They, they, they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, is that clear enough? That's so clear. Enough. For that reason, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Spiritual darkness. They couldn't see light if, if it was right in front of them. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
But I wanted to read that next verse too. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. <laughs> they're not called lovers of truth. They're called loved of God. And they love the truth because God loves them. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Notice particularly there in verse 13 that the only difference between the reprobate that's consigned to the blackness of darkness forever and us who believe on Christ, loved of God, is that God hath chosen us. That's the difference. The electing love and grace and power of God. Otherwise, there is no difference. The gospel also consigns false religionists to intolerable pain. Notice that in the text. There's pain. They gnawed their tongues for pain. This does not mean that this vow is poured out only at the end of time when the pains of hell begin to take hold of those who hate God's truth. Every time the gospel is preached, now those who reject Christ, they don't feel the pain yet, but they're being consigned to it every time. The cup of God's wrath is being filled up right now, wherever and, and whenever the gospel is preached. And it's, it is pain. Every pain suffered in this world is a small taste of the punishments of hell. The gospel itself brings a certain kind of pain now to those that hate it. I've seen it on their faces. I've seen people gnash their teeth literally at the plain, clear truth of sovereign mercy in Christ. They've done it in my presence. I've seen and heard what goes along with that also. In verse 11, look at it. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they repented not of their deeds. I want to really consider just this verse and the time we have left. That anguish of soul that causes them to blaspheme God is the pain spoken of in verse 10. There's a spiritual pain. Because of their true condition before God. Think about this. What is the sinner's true condition before God? From the crown of the head to the soles of your feet, you're covered with sores. Wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that have not been bound up nor mollified with ointment. They're miserable and wretched and blind and vile and having no rest from the guilt and bondage of their sin they do not repent as the elect of God do they blaspheme instead and think carefully about this for a minute this is pictured by that Gadarean demoniac the, the, the man filled with demons that was in Gadaria uh, Gadara. But think carefully about this for a minute. The very thing that becomes unbearable to the believer 
is the thing that is unbearable to the reprobate. When one of God's sheep becomes aware of his condition before God, we know that we're corrupt, there's no soundness in it. When we see the sores, when we see the spiritual leprosy that is our corruption inside and out, and we feel the pain of our guilt and shame, what does that sheep do? He runs to Christ and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Before Christ comes to him, he is the Gadarean demoniac, crying out and cutting himself among the tombs. That pictures an anguish of spirit that a, that a, a sinner can suffer without even really being aware of it. But they know every one of their problems, whether they know it or not, is because of their sin. But then Christ comes where he is and leaves him sitting and clothed and in his right mind. But the reprobate is in the same condition, crying and cutting themselves. The pain is self-inflicted in that they have forsaken their own mercy. But when their horrible, wretched condition is revealed by the preaching of Christ to them, they don't run to Christ. No man can do that except the Father which has sent Christ draw that sinner to Christ. So they don't do that. They won't do that. What do they do then? They blaspheme God. And don't just picture this blaspheming of God in your mind now, in your heart. Don't picture it as a fevered spewing forth of vicious obscenities. No, their blasphemy sounds more like this. God loves you. God loves everybody. Christ died for you. He did all he could do for you. And he wants to save you if you'll let him. That's what the misery of their souls causes them to say because they want to be included, but they don't give a hoot about the Son of God. That's their problem. They want God to love them and just kind of, I guess, sweep their sin under the rug because they won't bow to the crucified Redeemer that saved everybody he came to save. They're not going to bow to him. They won't bow to accomplished redemption by Christ himself. They try to bind up their wounds with bandages of sentimental sentiments that sound lovely, yet they destroy the very character of God. If God loves everybody, then what does his love have to do with the salvation of a sinner? They try to mollify the pain with an ointment concocted from various subtle lies that would render the love of God to be impotent and the grace of God to be a mockery to the souls of sinners. Anybody that tells a lame man to take the first step is mocking the soul of a wretched sinner. In the name of God, they're doing it. If a sinner love not the truth of Christ and him crucified, his perfect righteousness, his sin atoning successful sacrifice on Calvary, then there remains only a certain looking for of judgment. 
That's all that's left for them. If you miss Christ, you've forsaken your own mercy. And that judgment is pronounced every time somebody opens this book and tells the truth about God. The two reactions to the preaching of the gospel. Life and death. They are a difference made by the free and sovereign grace of God Almighty. He gives life to whom he will. And whom he will, he hardeneth. And they will blaspheme him to their grave until he gives them a new heart. Unless and until he gives them a new heart. But when God in his marvelous grace does give repentance, he gives repentance, then the sinner runs to and lays hold of Christ with all of his heart if God does not give repentance, though, there will not be any. Look at the last part of verse 11 with me again. And then I want to talk about repentance a little bit. Revelation 16, 11. They repented not of their deeds. Now, God has judged all their deeds, evil, sin, deserving of hell. He's shown it to be darkness and not light. And, the, and he's inflicted the anguish of the soul upon them over that. To whatever, what, in whatever way they experience that, I don't know. That's, that's between them and God. But they still don't repent. That won't cause a sinner to repent. Look with me at Luke chapter 16. I want us to understand repentance now from this passage because this is what happens when the gospel is preached. These vials poured out is the gospel being declared. These are messengers and messengers come with a message. This message reveals darkness, not only in practice, but in the heart. It inflicts, or it, it imposes the, the, righteous, the righteous indignation of God against man's sin. It leaves them as that demon-filled wretch that was living in the graveyard and crying out and cutting himself. When God brings you to that place, you'll either love him or you'll hate him. You'll either cry to him for mercy or you'll blaspheme his holy name. Luke 16, look at verse 19 with me. This is what I was trying to find last time, but we have this same the same phrase, they repented not. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores and it came to pass that the beggar died 
and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, now this is, think about what's at stake here. They're either going to go to the place of torment where this rich man is, or they're going to go be with God forever. This man didn't want to see his brothers go to hell. And so he said, here's what we got to do about that. Send Lazarus to tell him, to warn him about this place. And Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the word of God. They have the gospel. They have the serpent lifted up in the wilderness that God told Moses to make. They have the burning bush. They have God speaking and redeeming his people. He said, I've come down here to get my people and bring them home. <laughs> they have the gospel. They have the Passover lamb. The story of redemption by the blood of an innocent lamb. So why is Lazarus in glory? Because he had Moses in the prophet. That's why that poor old wretch sitting out there at the gate covered with sores is in glory now. Not because there's any virtue in poverty in this world. You can go to hell poor just as soon as you can go to hell rich. But he had Moses and the prophets. Life and death hinges on this. Let them hear them. Let them hear the gospel of Christ. Lazarus did, and he's in glory. He received the love of the truth from God by his sovereign grace. And so Abraham said, that's, that's the only thing that's going to keep them from where you are. And that man in hell said, no, Father Abraham, no. He said no to the gospel all of his life. Every time he heard it and he said no to it, in hell, the same way. No. Think about that. They have, mo they have the word of God. They have what God said about how a sinner is saved by the precious blood of Christ. No, 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 that won't do it. But if one went unto them from the dead, they'll repent. And now it's time for Father Abraham to say no. He said unto them, unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither 
will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead? There's one way to God. Christ. Christ preached. Christ crucified. Christ received in the heart by grace through faith. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we preach the gospel because it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching him to save them that believe. There's no repentance any other way. Neither will affliction bring repentance. Isaiah 1.4, listen to this. Ah, sinful nation, God said. Talking about his own people now, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken anymore? Why would I bother afflicting you any more than I already have? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Affliction's not going to cut it. It's not why God gives it. He does give it for a reason. But it's not going to bring repentance. Jot down Amos 4, 6 through 13, if you would, to read later if you want to. Amos 4. 6 through 13, I was going to turn over there tonight, but I believe I'll just let you read that. It's talking about how that God sent all kinds of different affliction to these people. And they repented not. They returned not unto the Lord. Even a mighty display of God's power will not cause repentance. Even when people know that God is angry with them. Listen to Revelation chapter 6. Look over there with me. Revelation 6.12 And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal and lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood. Can you imagine being in a great earthquake and even that which you depend on every day? One thing we can count on is we can walk on the floor and it'll, keep, it'll hold us up. Not today it won't. And it's dark. And it's pitch dark. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. This is spiritual language, of course. But think about that, what that represents. All of your foundations are pulled out from under you and God's showing you where you are. You're hanging by a thread of his mercy. Whether he'll have mercy on you or not, that's where you're hanging. You're at his mercy. And the heaven departed as a scroll, verse 14, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. Their reaction to this mighty display of God's power and wrath was what? Hide. Same as Adam. When you see who God is and you see what you are, the thing to do is run to him, not from him. But it takes grace. No man can. 
No man can. How then does repentance come? Well, the scripture are just as clear about how it comes as they are about how it doesn't come, which we just saw. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, when they heard the gospel, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, "Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life." Simon told them that he preached the gospel to them, and they rejoiced and believed on Christ. And they said, God gave them repentance. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? They didn't attribute it to anything about the Gentiles. God gave them repentance. What a wonderful statement. Acts 5.30, And the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Christ, it's his to give. Repentance is his to give. Second Timothy 2.24, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure. Are you happy with that word? You know, the way that religion makes their false labor in a false gospel to prosper is they entice and threaten until they see outward things happen that they call salvation. You walking down an aisle and making a decision, that's salvation. That's what determines heaven or hell in their world in their sad, godless world. But the gospel preacher declares the clear truth of Christ as God gives him light and says, just maybe. I'm happy with a maybe. I'm so happy with that. Because I know that God does all things well. And just maybe he's, he will give somebody a heart to change their mind about who he is, about what they are before him, and about who Christ is and how God saves a sinner. Repentance is turning from ourselves. It's turning from everything that religion holds dear. It's turning from your will. It's turning from your decision. Paul renounced all of that in Philippians chapter 3. Everything he had ever thought, said, or done, he called it dung that he might win Christ. It's renouncing everything that religion values. Your will, your way, your works, and laying hold of God's Son. That's repentance. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And if he does that, here's what will happen. That they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. Who are taken captive by him at his will. There's your free will right there. <laughs> oh my. 
Repentance is a change of mind about God, you, and how sinners are saved. Turning from ourselves to God. That's what he said. That you must take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Die to self and be alive unto God by his grace. It's to see, repentance is to see that our works, far from being the solution, they're our problem. They're our problem. The more we do, the more we sin. It's to see that Christ really is all. It's easy to say that. It's easy to, to, to say those simple words and to agree with them. But I fear, when I see what's going on in this world today, I fear that those words are real to very few. Very, very few. We've got to pour out the bowl, don't we? We've got to pour it out, the truth of God, so that this world is not so important anymore. And we see that truly Christ is everything. And it's a continual acknowledging of that in every aspect of life. Believing on Christ and worshiping Him with the people of God is not just something that we include in our lives. It is our lives. By God's grace, I ask myself that often. Is this really my life? And by His grace, it really is. Y'all are a big part of that. The love that God has given us for one another, the grace to forgive one another and to be one together with one cause, with one desire for His glory. That's life. There's a whole lot of things that we do in this life that are just included. When sports for our young people it's just a way to keep them occupied and keep them out of trouble until they learn who God is. And then we're in the right place. And their whole life doesn't revolve around that. Family's important. There are a lot of good things in this world that God has given us to enjoy, but I fear in this day and age, and I guess it's always been that way, that the things get in the way of us worshiping the one who gave them. May God deliver us from that, change our minds, our priorities, and give us grace to truly be able to say with all honesty, Christ is all. He's all in all to me. Pray with me to that end.